Hi, welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on history.org. This is behind the scenes where you meet the people who work here. That's my job. I'm Lloyd Dobbins, and mostly I ask questions. This time I'm asking Jason Whitehead, and at Colonial Williamsburg, he's supervisor of historic masonry training, which means what? Uh, basically, I run the brickyard, okay. as well as the apprentice program, uh, which includes bricklaying and plastering, and of course making the materials uh, that are used in both bricklaying and plastering, including bricks and mortar okay, and I plaster. I know a little bit about bricks, which are made from, if they're still the same way, mm -hmm. clay and water. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's it. Okay. Now, this is the time of year when you fire them, right? Right. It's a, it's a once-a-year event. We're making shape bricks all summer, cook them in the fall. How many do you cook at a time? Well, you cook all of them. That would, of course, depend on how many you've made in the summer. Okay. But we're going to build a kiln big enough to cook every brick at one time. Well, uh, you have to, right? Right, right. Because okay. the kiln is made out of the bricks being fired. So there, there's no big building. It's You just pile the bricks up, and uh, how do you get fire to them? Uh, well, the, the kiln is just it's a big pile of bricks with tunnels that run through the bottom. The, the way the bricks are stacked, you create a series of tunnels where your fire will burn. Uh, the outside of the kiln can be either closed in with bricks that have been fired already or just a real heavy coating of mud on the outside just to keep the heat in. That, that sounds like a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. Uh, and then once the kiln is built, you just put the fires and the tunnels in the bottom and uh, just keep the fires going for about five days and nights. 24 so hours. 24 hours. How do you, do you have somebody there 24-7? Somebody has to well, be there the whole time. 24-5. 24-5. Somebody is there the whole time. Okay. Uh, at least two people because you have to keep each other awake. <laughs> when are you going to do that this year? Uh, we will start on the 19th of October, which is a Thursday. Mm -hmm. uh, run through that weekend and probably wrap up either Monday night or Tuesday the next, that next day. Okay. Do you start? Okay. This, it's the 19th. It's a Thursday. Mm -hmm. The, when do you put the bricks up? Well, that's what we're doing right now, the, oh. the weeks before the firing. Oh. Uh, we've, we spend about four or five weeks literally stacking the tens of thousands of bricks that are going to be fired. How many How many this time? Well, this time we have about 16,000. 16,000. Well, uh, which is a little bit fewer than last year, but it's more than a couple of years ago, so it varies with from year to year. <laughs> you, when it's all, it's all done, well, by hand and, as I remember, by foot as well. Right. Because you've got to uh, walk, get the what's it, getting the air out of Actually, the clay. Actually, walking right. through the clay gets the water into the clay oh, okay. to break the hard, dry clay down into a consistency that you can actually mold and shape and, and work by hand. And it takes hours of, of working clay by feet to get it to that consistency. Uh, when you fire it on the 19th, can people come watch? Uh, yeah, actually, we the, the yard is open from 9 in the morning uh, until 10 o'clock in the evening. Mm -hmm. So we can come during the day. You can go out for supper. You can come back after supper and, and see it lit up at nighttime. So. But somebody's there all the time. So. Uh, out of is it more fun in the day or at night? Well, it's more fun at night. Yeah. I mean, the, the yard is, is lit up with, with crescent fires burning in the, the crescent baskets and mm -hmm lanterns, and, and it sort of takes on a whole different atmosphere in the evening time. 
especially as the kiln starts to heat up and the bricks inside actually start to glow. That would be weird looking. <laughs> well, you have to, I mean, it's not like the whole kiln is glowing from the outside. It's, it's when it's time to, to stoke the fires and, and work the fires and we sort of open up the tunnels on the bottom and you can see inside the, the hottest part of the oven there, so. I, I, uh, I know something about you, that you are a fourth generation at Colonial Williamsburg. Costumed employee. Costumed employee. Mm -hmm. Okay, take me through it. Who was uh, first? My, well, my great-grandfather uh, worked here. His, his involvement was as uh, an extra in the story of a patriot. So okay. he's the fellow that sits behind John Fry in, in the House of Burgesses. Or his, his best part is he is the, the old gentleman who hands out all the, the muskets to the, the young fellow signing up to the militia. Okay. Now we know who he is. Yeah. My grandfather and grandmother uh, both worked for the foundation. My grandfather ran the, the Williamsburg Theater, or as it's called, the Kimball Theater now, for about 30 years. Mm -hmm. uh, my grandmother was in charge of the Colonial Post Office in town for a number of years. Uh, my mother worked. My mother worked most of her time behind the scenes, but she did costume work as well and the evening programs and things like that. So, and then there's me. And a fifth. And a fifth generation. Uh, my young son was uh, earlier this summer in some filming for a new orientation video that will be shown alongside the story of a patriot. So, there's the fifth generation. Okay, I, I find that. Uh you just don't think about that many generations of people in modern America where everybody moves all the time and goes someplace else. Mm -hmm. And now you've got five generations of people in one place. That means we just don't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't well, gone very far in life. Well, that's one way to do it, <laughs> I guess. But, uh, but speaking of that, have you ever thought that you might want to try something else? Or is you know, this is what you want to do? Well, I didn't grow up wanting to make bricks for a living. It's just, <laughs> it's how the everything sort of fell into place. I mean, I, I started at Kelowna Williamsburg 11 years ago, selling hats out on Market Square. Oh. Uh, and spent two years in, in that position, and then spent two over two years in our collections and conservation department, working with the, the antiques and the collections. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've always told people that it was a job for two years where you had to stay very clean and make sure everything else was very clean. And after two years of that, I decided I wanted to go the other way and find a job where you could get as dirty as possible. And I knew the fellow who ran the brickyard then, and there was a position open, and sort of kind of all fit into place. Okay, uh, back to that. You fire, okay, this year... You've made 16,000 bricks. Mm -hmm. Going to fire them on the 19th. Mm -hmm. uh, let, let's say it goes well and you have 15,500 bricks. What do you use them for? The bricks that we make are used all over the historic area, whether it's in uh, repairing and maintenance of, say, the, the 1750s wall around the Bruton Parish churchyard, which we've made bricks for before. Uh, or the reconstruction of the outbuildings behind Peyton Randolph's house. I mean, all the outbuildings are they're wooden buildings, but they all have brick foundations and chimneys in the kitchen and things like that. So this isn't just a way to keep you occupied and a hobby. It's, it's you're making brick because you need brick. Right. 
Uh, how did, well, have you ever measured how hot the fire is? Because it just suddenly occurred, if you stuff things under brick, it's going to burn kind of hot eventually. You can, you can overfire a kiln. Okay. We used to always joke that the worst thing that can happen is you can have one big giant brick when it's all done, when everything fuses together. And I say we used to joke because then we had a fellow come from Delaware who apparently there's an old church by his house, and in the woods behind that old church is a big pile of bricks all fused together. So it could happen, and it obviously did happen. Um, we've been making bricks in sort of the historic sense for, well, this incarnation of the brickyard has been around almost 20 years. And for the first 10 or 12 years of that, you know, we were measuring heat in the kiln uh, using all kinds of thermometers and pyrometers and things to, to see how the heat would build in the kiln and how it would spread out through the bricks. And, you know, measure the heat, you know, every hour, every couple of hours to, to sort of watch how it's moving around. And you do that enough, you, you don't need to measure the heat anymore because you get a feeling of what's going on. And you can, you can literally see what's going on with the heat uh, inside the oven. And so since... 98, 1998, we haven't used any of those scientific equipment anymore. So it's all just done by eye. Okay. How, do, how does a brick change as it gets hot? Here you got this thing made of clay and water in a mm -hmm. square kind of, and now you put the fire under it. Well, by that point in the process, it is very dry. Mm -hmm. It has been drying at least a month or two to get as much of that water back out of the clay as possible. So the bricks are structurally sound enough that you could build a house out of them even if they haven't been fired. The reason you don't is because when you have a big rain, your house will turn to a pile of mud. So that's why you fire them. That's discouraging. Right. If you live in a desert, that's your adobe brick, just sun-dried clay. You don't have to cook them. Um, a couple of things will happen to the clay when it's fired. It's, it's a heat that we know today is around 1,800 to 2,000 degrees. But again, that's just through years of research. It's nothing that we actually measure during the firing now. Uh, at that point, the clay will begin to vitrify, which is a sort of a physical change where the clay just sort of melts. The molecules melt and start to fuse to one another. And that's sort of the physical change from clay to brick, which is kind of an artificial rock. It doesn't melt when it gets rained on. It's also during that process that the brick turns red. The, the clay that we use in the yard is more of a tan color. And when it dries out, it's a very sand color, very light beige. Uh, if we used a red clay, we'd have red bricks. If we used, made or used an orange clay, we'd make red bricks. If we use a tan clay, we make red bricks. Because in all that clay, there's a lot of iron. Mm -hmm. When the iron's heated, it oxidizes or turns red. Now, the shade of red will vary depending on where the brick is in the oven and how hot it gets. So you'll have bricks that are kind of darker purples and bricks that are orange and hopefully a lot of bricks that are red. You were saying uh, a guy from Delaware came and told you about all the bricks going, uh, going together, and so you have this huge hunk of 16,000 bricks. How does that happen? Well, that happens when you're uh, not careful enough with building the heat and maybe just a little too excited about putting wood in the fire and get a little bit too hot. But how... When you stack the bricks, are they stacked one next to another? They're or, stacked or one on top of another. with a little space? With about a finger's worth of space between it. Okay. 
So it, unless you really get careless, it's you don't really have a true danger of all of them melting together in this lump of lump. If you know what you're doing, mm -hmm. and that's why you needed a brick maker, because hopefully that's the person who knows what he's doing. I mean, the kiln's the only hard part of making bricks. Everything else is just work. It's, mm -hmm. it's labor. It's, it's going to be mostly slave labor, uh, historically. Um, but you still needed a brick maker, somebody who knew kind of overall what was going on and whose real skill lies in the firing process. Okay. To know when the bricks are hot enough without getting them to that point where they fuse together. How did you learn that? Well, I've been working in the brickyard since 1999 and have been involved in a lot of kilns. Okay. Some of which have burned beautifully, some of which haven't. So that's, I mean, and historically that's how you learn. Mm -hmm. This, unlike other trades, brick making was not an apprentice trade. You just went you just, to work making brick. You figure it out by and, watching it. And, uh... As you watched people make brick, you became able to make brick. Mm -hmm. That's uh, not an apprentice trade. Means generally speaking, it's not a craft. Right. right. It's it's as you said, it's labor. Right. Unskilled labor. And uh, that would be, I don't know why, but that'd be sort of discouraging after you learn how to do something and somebody tells you it's unskilled labor. It's not very complimentary. Well, I mean, historically, brickmakers tended to be lower sorts, you know, people who couldn't afford to go out or their, or their parents weren't able to secure an apprenticeship for them to learn a skilled trade, probably because their parents were also poor and perhaps even uh, brick making would pass through generations of family. As a, as a child growing up in a brickyard, you, you pick up on how to do it mm -hmm. and you don't have the opportunity to go out and learn other, other parts of the business other, or other trades. Um, most of, I mean, like I said, most of the work anyway is going to be slave labor. So, I mean, there's not much opportunity to pass the trade on to there as well. So, again, that's why it sort of runs through family generations. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. Checkhistory.org often will post more for you to download and hear.